The scripture lesson this morning is from Galatians, the third chapter, the 23rd to the 29th verses. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law, under faith, until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject, subjected to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, we've been talking about Galatians, or I've been talking about Galatians for a few weeks now, and uh, we've been talking about how Paul is very angry, and if you read Galatians, you can tell. Paul's not good at hiding how he's feeling uh, at any given time. So Paul is very angry about some folks who are coming and reteaching the churches in Galatia the gospel in a way that Paul was not really uh, excited about. Basically, they're saying, now wait a minute, Paul did a great job, I mean, getting folks started, but these folks from the Jerusalem church, the, the, the missionaries we call them, these folks from the Jerusalem church came down, they said, wait a minute, you're missing a whole lot of information. First of all, you're going to need to follow the the Jewish food laws, you're going to need to uh, you know, celebrate the high holy days in the Jewish faith, and your men, this is the big one, your men are going to need to be circumcised. So, uh, you know, Paul left out a whole bunch. Well, this gets Paul riled, right? And we talked about, and so Paul in his letter to the Galatians is laying out an argument as to why a gospel based on justification through faith and we a couple weeks ago we talked about justification that is being right with God comes coming through faith versus doing all these works of the law so that's kind of we pick things up here uh today uh picking up uh in chapter three now uh of Paul's argument that he's he's trying to make and so as, uh, as these groups come together, the, this group from Jerusalem has come down, this group in Galatia have been kind of grappling with the information they're getting, and Paul is here to set them straight. And Paul goes into this discussion about the law, but this time posing our relationship to the law in a very different way. Paul rightly places the law in the context of discipline, answering the question, what is the law for then? Paul, if you're going to throw out the law, what, is the, what was the point of a thousand years 
of following the laws of Moses. What was the point of that? And Paul says the point was discipline. The point was having that law there to kind of hold us in until Christ. But now, through Christ, we experience justification, not through the things we do in the law, but through our faith and in Jesus Christ. It's revealed to us, this justification through faith revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds the churches of Galatia that in our baptism we have clothed ourselves with Christ. And what Paul seems to be saying here is that it is this identity, it is this connection we have, this identity with Christ that stands out, that sets us apart, and that justifies us before God. Furthermore, it is our identity with Christ that makes us one, that makes us together, that makes us a body. Not our traditions, not our particular styles, not not our worship. It is Christ, our oneness in Christ. And this is kind of what Paul is really getting to, that, uh, that, you know, it's fine to celebrate the High Holy Days if you know from your Jewish tradition that's fine it's fine to circumcise your children uh, if that's part of your tradition but uh, to impose it on a group who never had that tradition seems absurd given the freedom that is experienced through faith in Christ that's Paul's argument is this is an absurd imposition to put on Gentile converts to Christianity. It just doesn't even make sense to Paul. For Paul, the traditions of the Jewish faith, they're fine if they brought you comfort, but they must rightly be placed secondary to the ones to one's identity in Jesus Christ. Now, the the missionaries from Jerusalem, they had an argument to make and it was a good one. Jesus was Jewish. We all are Jewish. It stands to reason that if you want to be one of us, you should do things like we do them. And in our homogeny, there is oneness. That's a good argument. I mean, it's true, right? We could all wear red and dye our hair like Pastor Curtis. And not only would we look good, but uh, <laughs> we would have that sense of oneness, right? That's why the choir wears their robes. So that they're, you know, they look and sound like a one nice unit. I mean, it has that effect but for Paul again these these traditions the things we do they must always be secondary to our identity in Christ and it is that identity it is that connection with Christ that makes us one how you worship or what food you eat or how you pray these are questions of style not substance And so it makes no sense to require Gentiles to adhere to customs of the Jewish tradition when it is meaningless to them. Oh, we have this same conversation in the church today, 2,000 years later, don't we? They just take on a a different form. Right? Greg, you know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Pastors know what I'm talking about. One group likes, you know, guitar, praisey music instead of hymns. But instead of just saying, you know, it's a matter of style or a matter of preference, 
Everyone tries to theologize it, right? Praise music is so much freer and more personal. It's more Spirit-filled. Having the words up on a screen lets me lift my head up to God. Uh, That is what real worship is like. But then there's another group who prefer hymns and they have their own theological justifications as well. The words are deeper and more theological. It's not just, you know, repeating the same thing over and over again. Praise songs are repetitious and monosyllabic. Hymns are easier to sing because they have all these verses. That is real worship. Right? We've heard all these. And quite frankly, it's just a matter of... Can't we just admit? It's just a matter of preference and style. And it probably has more to do with what the soundtrack was when we came to faith than anything else. Right? What hymn, what song was playing in the background when you felt the the presence of God for the very first times in your life? That's, That's what it is. For me, it was, Lord, I lift your name on high. For some of you, it was, how great thou art. Right? That's, that's really what that is about. Of course, it's not just music either. Some folks, it's the King James Version or nothing. Others like one that's easier to read. Some want to have the Lord's Prayer every week. Others don't even know what that is. One group says worship for an hour and, an, and one hour only. Another group says, we're just getting started in an hour. <laughs> that's just getting going. <laughs> One group says pastors should wear robes. Others say shorts and flip-flops. Right? These aren't even theological issues. Again, this is style, not substance. None of the... You know, Paul would go, who cares? It's about our oneness in Christ. What Paul seems to be saying here and throughout this letter is that these things are secondary to our identity as one who was baptized into Christ. And this produces a oneness that transcends all of our difference. You know, if, if we could all agree on particular stylistic things, that could produce a oneness. But um, even more profound, transcendent oneness comes through embracing our oneness in Jesus Christ. Paul begs us to reject oneness through homogeny in favor of oneness in Christ. And it doesn't mean that we're all exactly alike. It doesn't mean that we all look and act and feel the same way. Jesus came to people in a lot of different ways and called them to different things at different times and to behave in different ways. What makes us one is our faith in Jesus and and not all these other things. And it is when this identity with Christ that marks who we are above all other identifiers, that is when we can really say we are one body, one mind. This is what Paul means when he says we have been clothed in Christ. It means that this is who we are. We are a son or a daughter of God through Christ. That's what Paul means when he's talking about being heirs along with, of Abraham's promise along with Jesus. It's because we have been clothed with Christ. It is who we are in our very core. The main identifier of who we are is I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. It's not my maleness that is significant. It is my identity as a son 
of God that matters. It is not my money or my poverty that makes me who I am. It is my identity with Christ. It is not my status as slave or free that sets me apart. It is my faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are neither Greek nor Jew, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ, our Scripture said today. Therefore, we are neither Baptist nor Catholic. We are one in Christ. We are neither Democrat nor Republican. We are one in Christ. Therefore, we are neither conservative nor liberal. We are one in Christ. We are neither tall or short. We are one in Christ. We are neither post-millennial or pre-millennial. One in Christ. We are neither fundamentalist nor post-modern. We are one in Christ. We are not gay or straight, Pentecostal or liturgical. We are one in Christ. Amen? Amen? These things are secondary to the question of who we are because who we are is a follower of Jesus Christ. And we are one with every other follower of Jesus Christ out there. Now that's the hard part. We are one, we are one with every other person out there who calls on the name of Jesus. That's tough. <laughs> because I don't like some of them out there. I, can we be honest? Can we, you know, just here in this place. Can we be honest about this? I don't always like what some of our brothers and sisters say. I don't like what they do. I don't like the way they interpret Scripture. I don't like how they use it. And that's the hard part. It means that even when we find it difficult... Our first perception is oneness. There are good, God-loving, Christ-centered fellow travelers and brethren out there whose ideas and concepts are so troubling to me that I barely know where to begin when I'm in a discussion with them. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and I must recognize that above all else means I can't just dismiss them or condemn them. It means I cannot threaten them or put them down. It means I cannot ignore them and hope they go away. <laughs> what it means is that I have to struggle to hear them. I have to engage with them. I have to try to understand where they're coming from. And it means that I have to acknowledge that they have an experience with the living Christ that is every bit as valid as my own. It means that I get to tell my story too. We may never agree on certain things, but I may have to just live with the tension of that. Because what is of the utmost importance is our oneness in Christ. It doesn't mean that we won't disagree. It doesn't mean that sometimes people are wrong. People are wrong. Sometimes, God forbid, Pastor Curtis is wrong. And I've noticed you all love pointing that out. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. It is embracing our oneness in spite of all these varied opinions and experiences that tells the world we are truly followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they might be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be, talking about us, that they may be com- become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The way the world knows that we are followers of Jesus is through our oneness. By this they will know they are my disciples, by their oneness. Here's an example. You know, and, and there's, there's a guy that's only listed in the, there's a few of these, but there's, there's a guy that the only time you hear about him is in the list of the disciples. And there's, there's two that I want to make note of. One is Matthew. We all know Matthew, right? Matthew was a tax collector, Levi, a tax collector, a collaborator with the Romans and with the Jewish aristocracy. One who collaborated, who, who collaborated with them to take the money of his fellow countrymen. Matthew is a conspirator, just like those French who went with the Nazis in World War II. People hated him. Matthew had no friends. In that same list, there's a guy whose, whose name we only hear in the list of disciples. I've talked about this before, I think, but it's good to hear it again. This guy, his name is Simon the Zealot. That's all we know is his name. Except it says that he's a zealot. A zealot is a terrorist who went around killing collaborators like Matthew. If there had been bombs in those days, Simon the Zealot would have been setting off bombs that were strapped to himself. They thought that, zealots thought that they were going to bring about God's kingdom by destroying the Roman Empire through violence and bringing about God's redemption that way. So here is, in the list of disciples, Matthew the conspirator and Simon the terrorist who kills conspirators. I bet conversation around the dinner table was interesting between these two guys. And you know, I'm sure that their story about how Jesus transformed their lives were so vastly different that it didn't even... It's like they were talking about two different Jesuses. And yet, here they are working together toward the Kingdom of God brought together through Jesus Christ. That's transcendent oneness amen that's what we're talking about here the sin of the church for centuries now has been that it has let our religion divide us from constantine up till now we have allowed ourselves to take these these wonderful words of life from the bible and skew them to say that it's okay to hate some people And it is even okay to kill some people. Think about the burnings at the stake during the Reformation. You know, now is a crucial time in the church. People are walking away in droves. People are saying it doesn't doesn't have anything to offer my life. But the church as an institution, it may not make it through this transition we're going through right now. But one of the things that will make or break us is this. It is our ability to allow Christ 
to transcend those things which divide us. As we are faithful in this, the church becomes a reflection of the kingdom of God Jesus came to herald in. And if we continue to let issues of comfort or style or whatever trump our oneness in Christ, I dare say that the Christian church as an institution is not long for this world. I pray that our faithfulness in being one together yet so different from one another helps redeem the church. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we hear Your call to oneness not through all thinking, feeling, and acting the same, but through Your transcendent love and our relationship with You and our oneness in You. May that be who we are, children of the living God through Christ. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.